Listen now as I read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is, the sign of gen- this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you again to uh, take your Bible and open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've now come to the end of our series, and we'll be looking at the final verses of this chapter and this letter. As the old saying goes, I'm sure uh, the majority of you have heard this, it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. This is true when it comes to running any kind of race. It doesn't really matter if you start strong and you get way ahead of everyone else. If you become complacent, and you start to slack off, lull about, and focus on other things instead of the race itself, you might find yourself in the same situation as the hare when he was racing against the tortoise. Kids, do you know the story of the hare and the tortoise, or the tortoise and the hare from Aesop's Fables? Yes, right? The hare, which is a really fast animal, was racing against the tortoise, which is a very, very, very slow animal. And during the the race, the hare was so far ahead after such a strong start that he decided to relax, and he took a long nap. Now, the tortoise, on the other hand, was moving slow. But the thing about the tortoise is that he never stopped moving. He was always making his way forward in the race. And in the end, when the hare woke up from his nap, he realized that the tortoise was about to win the race. And the hare ran as fast as he could, but it was too late. The hare lost to the tortoise. That story is a good little reminder about the dangers of slacking off and becoming idle in this spiritual life. 
You could say that the Thessalonian church was a church that started really strong in their spiritual race, despite all of the persecution and suffering, trials and tribulations, by God's grace, they chose Christ. They received Jesus, and they received the gospel with joy in the midst of a ton of affliction, and they were living a life of faith, hope, and love. And Paul is grateful that they started by running hard for Jesus, but he makes it very clear here in a passage today that he wants them to continue running hard for Jesus. He wants the church to be running hard, devoted to living a life of good works now and until the very end of our race, until Jesus takes us home. But here's the reality of our situation. If the letter to the Thessalonians has taught us anything about our experience on this side of glory, it's that this spiritual race is absolutely filled with many hardships. In in many ways, it feels like the odds are stacked against us. Over the last three months of studying this letter, we've seen what these hardships look like. There's suffering because of persecution, confusion because of all the false teachings, struggling because of the existence of idleness within the church. You have affliction, confusion, idleness. These were the three major issues that the Thessalonian church was struggling with, and they are still issues that the church struggles with today. You may not be living a kind of life where your very life is on the line for being a Christian like the Thessalonians, but that doesn't mean persecution doesn't exist. There's still the experience of being scorned, mocked, accosted, left out, and punished for choosing to follow Christ. And maybe we're not hearing a bunch of fake news about how Jesus has already returned, but that doesn't mean there aren't other false teachings out there that seek to distract us from the truth. And when it comes to idleness, one can argue that the sin of idleness, living a disorderly life while meddling in the affairs of others, has only become worse in our present day due to the rapid rise of technology and social media. I mean, just think about it. There's just so much distraction that pulls us away from our God-given responsibilities. There's just so many opportunities to meddle in the affairs of others when our lives are so digitally connected. And yet, in the midst of all of these hardships, these trials, these troubles, these oppositions and obstacles, the call on our lives is to keep running and to live a life devoted to good works. What does that kind of life look like? Well, it's a life where you keep doing good works. You keep away from idle members And as you're striving to do both these things, you keep relying on Christ. So you can follow along in your bulletin with me. Point number one, keep doing good works. If you turn to our passage today, beginning in verse 13, you can see that this is a start of a new section. And and we know this because he uses the word brothers. In, In his letter to the Thessalonians, that's usually a clear indication that Paul is moving away from one section and entering into another section. So we're now officially moving into the conclusion of this letter. But at the same time, verses 13 to 15 is a continuation from the previous passage on idleness from verses 6 to 12. 
And, and that's important to keep in mind because it's going to help us make better sense of this text in front of us. Now, look at the end of verse 12. Paul commands the idle believers to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. If you have been living in idleness, not busy obeying God, but busy meddling and mooching off the generosity of others, then the call for you is to repent, and you need to work where God has called you to work in your season and stage of life. Verse 12 is the only time where Paul directly speaks to the idle Christian. But in verse 13, he turns his attention back to the rest of the church, the non-idle members of the church, and he encourages them to keep doing good works. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So you have to see those two things together because what Paul is doing is he is directly contrasting the sin of idleness. What, what he's talking about here is the kind of life that isn't busy with the affairs of others, but it's busy with the things of God. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 that we were at one time dead in our sin, all of us. We were living in disobedience and in the passions of our flesh, doing evil deeds. But God is the one who saved us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians 2 verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's making it absolutely clear in Ephesians 2 that, that your good works did not save you. It is a gift of God. It is the grace of God. But we can't forget what it says in the very next verse in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved us, and God gave us a new life in Christ that would be marked by good works, which is obeying His commandments and living holy lives. This is the fruit of real faith. This is an essential mark of genuine Christianity. And it's clear that the Thessalonians had a good understanding of this. As we've studied First and Second Thessalonians over the last year, we've run into many passages where Paul commends them for their faithfulness to God, their love for one another, their joy in tribulation, and their obedience to Christ. It, it, j th these are two letters that are highly encouraging. And even when it comes to the sin of idleness, it's very clear that Paul is not talking about everyone in the church. As a matter of fact, he's talking directly to those, the majority, who are not walking in idleness. But remember, just because they started strong in their spiritual race doesn't mean they can just slack off and let their guard down. Past faithfulness doesn't guarantee future faithfulness. Just because you started strong doesn't mean you'll finish well. There's the great danger, the spiritual danger that comes to, comes to the Christian who thinks that they're all good and, and they have everything under control. That's when the heart begins to drift into the perilous waters of pride and complacency. And we know what the Bible says, right? God opposes the proud. 
So, we must be vigilant about the dangers of becoming proud and complacent, and at the same time, we must be diligent about obeying the commandments of Christ and living a life of good works. Now, if you look at verse 13, what you'll see is that the main command in verse 13 is to not grow weary, not grow weary. That, that is the emphasis of the text. That's the main verb there. In other words, don't give up. Don't slow down. Don't lose heart while you're running this race of faith. Behind these words is the assumption that the Thessalonians are already doing this. They're already living a life of good works, and Paul is looking at them and saying, don't slow down. Don't get tired. Now, we need to be careful here because this doesn't mean you're in sin if you ever get tired. A parent with a fresh newborn baby in the home and very little sleep is bound to be super tired and unable to function at 100%. A student during a tough exam season is at times going to be overwhelmed and exhausted by all of the intense studying. A worker is going to experience some extremely busy times at their job that is just, that is just going to suck up all of their energy. A church member might burn out due to all the serving that they are doing, meeting the needs of others, striving to be faithful and running hard for Jesus. At the end of the day, we need to remember that we are human beings made of flesh and blood. That means our frame is fragile and our strength is limited. I mean, just think about it. Jesus himself in his humanity grew tired. He went to sleep. It's not like he had unlimited energy to keep going on. And yet, Jesus was sinless. As I mentioned earlier, what Paul is doing here is he is, he, with his command, is he is contrasting the sin of idleness. So, to be tired and to take a break is not in itself a sin, but to just give up in this spiritual race and not care about God's word anymore and meddle in the affairs of others is a sin. That is the sin of idleness, and Paul is pushing against that. Yes, you need to take your breaks. Yes, you need to sleep and rest and recharge, but don't stop following Jesus. Don't veer off the path of good works and fall into the ditch of idleness. Keep doing good works. And that includes all the good works that we generally enjoy doing. Maybe it's more the things like serving and showing hospitality and giving generously to others as you're able to. But it also includes all the good works that are more challenging, such as confronting sin in a fellow believer, and having some painful, awkward, and difficult conversations. And that brings us to point number two, keep away from idle members. Look at verse 14. Paul goes on and he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. As I mentioned before, this section is a continuation of the previous passage on idleness, which, which means we need to understand this verse in light of its immediate preceding context. We are not to apply this sort of response to every persistent sin in the life of the church. Paul is talking about a very specific response to a very specific sin. 
If you were here two weeks ago when I preached that, that last passage from verses 6 to 12, you'll probably remember that the only time Paul actually commands the church, gives imperatives to the church to do something is found in this short section from verses 6 to 12 about dealing with idleness. Paul uses the word command three times there in that short little passage. So, when Paul says here in verse 14 that uh, when he's talking about those who do not obey what is in this letter, 2 Thessalonians, he's specifically referring to those who are living disorderly lives, disobeying God and living in idleness. That word obey corresponds to Paul's explicit commands about the sin of idleness. So, when it, when it comes to this sin of idleness, the first thing the church is supposed to do is take note of that person. Take note of that person meaning you are to recognize and clearly identify the idle Christian. Don't just ignore them. Don't put them in your blind spot. I think this really pushes against that tendency in many of us to avoid confrontation and let certain things just slide. It's a little bit easier to go about life that way, isn't it? But we can because idleness is no small thing in the eyes of God. It goes against his good creation purposes. It is a viral sin that can infect others. It disturbs the peace and unity of the body of Christ, and it brings disrepute to the name of Jesus. Idleness is highly unbefitting of a Christian. So Paul says, don't ignore it. Don't don't ignore it. If, If positive instruction fails, if direct admonition doesn't work and idleness persists in the life of a fellow member, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. This is basically a repeat of his instruction from verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. What Paul is doing here is he's looking at the church and he is calling them to an action of corporate disapproval and corporate disfellowship. You are to remove normal Christian fellowship from this persistent idle member. Keep aloof and keep your distance. In Matthew 18, you have the four-stage process of church discipline. Stage one, private confrontation. And if that doesn't work, you go to to your brother alone. If that doesn't work, then you bring two or three other witnesses. That's stage two. If that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you move to stage four, which is excommunication, the final stage. You remove him from the membership of the church. What Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 3 would basically be stage three in the process. It is the church as a whole responding and rebuking this idle member through the act of withdrawing fellowship. Now, I realize that the last time I talked about this two weeks ago, there was still some uncertainty about what this actually looks like. So, let me try to give you an example through a hypothetical scenario. Let's just say there is a brother in the church who is very clearly walking in the sin of idleness. He's a young, smart, strapping guy. He's, He's very capable with a ton of potential, but he is just unwilling to work. 
He, he doesn't want to take responsibility for his life, and he is expecting others in his own family and in his own church family to take care of him. Not only that, but he likes to bother and sometimes even hurt other members in the church by inserting himself in places where he doesn't belong. Without knowing any context or a whole ton of information, he's quick to speak and he likes to tell others how to do things, and he can be quite abrasive and insensitive. Here is a persistent sin of idleness. Now, say that you've already confronted him about this privately a while ago. You had that one-on-one conversation. You've maintained the dignity of, of privacy, and he still refused to repent. I mean, you gave him ample time. You gave him like two to three months, but he hasn't even begun to put together a resume. So you escalated eventually to stage two when you brought two other members with you to rebuke him and call him to repentance, but the same thing happened even after a few months you saw no real repentance. The next step would be to move to stage three. At this point, I think it would be a prudent thing to inform the elders and get them to lead in this process since it involves a coordinated response from the church as a whole. That brother ought to be publicly identified at a members meeting, take note of that person, and the whole church should be instructed to withdraw fellowship from him. Now, the way this is exactly done could look different from church to church and from case to case. But the big idea is to keep the unrepentant idle brother at a distance. So, don't invite him out to fellowship events. Don't invite him over to your house for just a friendly meal. At the corporate gathering of the church, if he's there, it means that every single conversation is about this sin of idleness. When he comes up to you and he wants to talk about his week or the weather or what's going on in the world of sports and politics and in the lives of everyone else because he's meddling in the affairs of others and he loves to gossip, you say to him, brother, now is not the time for this. We need to talk about your sin of idleness and your need to repent. You might not use those exact same words But in your own way, you should be bringing every conversation back to this main issue, and every other member in the church ought to be doing the same. That's an example of how you might withdraw normal Christian fellowship to a brother or a sister who is persistently walking in the sin of idleness. Now, what's very interesting is what Paul says next in verse 14, right at the end, There, he gives us the purpose for such a corporate response. Look again at verse 14. He says, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that, here's the purpose, that he may be ashamed. Paul is commanding the church as an act of loving discipline to keep their distance from idle members so that they would be ashamed. So I want you to think about that. The goal is to shame them. I don't know about you, but those words come as quite a bit of a shock to me. And this is something that I've really had to wrestle with over the last few weeks. Is Paul really saying what he's saying here? Is he actually talking about shaming fellow members in the church? Well, 
If we're going to be the kind of church that takes God's word seriously, then the answer has to be yes, because it's there. Paul is talking about shaming fellow members in the church, but it's imperative that we understand exactly what he means by shame. Because I know that shame is a loaded word in our context today. That's especially true for those of you who are coming from honor-shame cultures. And I can understand something of that personally because my Korean background is an intense honor-shame culture. So let me try to explain what Paul means and what he doesn't mean by shame. First, let me give you a negative, negative example. During the evenings in my home before bed, I've been reading to my girls a biography of Corey Ten Boom, who was a Dutch Christian who was arrested and thrown into a concentration camp in World War II for hiding Jews from the Nazis. As many of you know, my wife was saved reading Corey's uh, book, The Hiding Place, and we also named our oldest daughter after Corey Ten Boom. Now, this past week, we were reading the part of the story where Corey is in Ravensbrück, that's not the exact German pronunciation, Ravensbrück, which is a Nazi concentration camp exclusively for women. And one of the things that Corey distinctly remembers is coming into that camp for the first time and while being processed, having to stand in public with other women completely naked in front of a bunch of Nazi soldiers. And she talks about the deep humiliation and embarrassment and the deep shame that came from having to do that. And this didn't only happen once at the beginning, but it happened again and again during her 10 months of being in prison. That is an extreme example, but what we need to realize is that something of that nature is not what Paul has in mind when he's talking about shame. This is not about dehumanizing a person. It's not about mockery and belittling anyone. It's not about humiliating someone in front of everyone else and making them feel naked and exposed. The shame that Paul is talking about is a deep, heartfelt conviction of sin. It's the feeling of being broken on the inside because of one's disobedience and sin before a holy God. By getting the church to withdraw fellowship, he's looking to produce a godly sorrow in an idle Christian's heart that will lead them to genuine repentance. If these idle Christians continue on their path of unrepentant sin, it will ultimately lead to them being disqualified in the faith and being excommunicated from the church. So if you're wrestling with just how severe this disciplinary act is, I think it's important to consider the question, what's worse, a moment of shame in this life or an eternity in hell? Because the soul of a person is what hangs in the balance. And because of that, Paul is not shying away from employing some tough, Christian love. Now, shame may be the immediate goal, but we need to understand that it is not the end goal. 
Our job isn't done as a church by shaming someone and making them feel super bad about their sin. That shame is meant to ultimately drive that person to the only one in the world who can take away that shame from them. That shame that we feel because of our sin can never truly be removed by any amount of good works. We can't do anything to remove the shame of our sin, and the only one who can take it away is Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, it says, everyone who believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. Isn't that a good word? Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Jesus is always the end goal, not shame. We want to see our idol brothers and sisters shamed into running to Jesus with that shame so that they would experience his grace and the forgiveness of sin again. As a matter of fact, we want every sinner to run to Jesus with their shame so that they would be forgiven, healed, and saved. If you're carrying shame of any sin in your heart right now, And friend, you need to know that you don't have to bear that shame any longer. Because Jesus bore our sins in his body. Jesus was shamed on the cross in our place. Jesus is the one who died the death that we deserve. And Jesus is the one who rose again from the grave. And that means that Jesus has all the power in the world to take away your shame if you come to him. What you need to do, all you need to do is turn away from your sins and believe in Christ. Put your trust in him. Believe that he died for your sins and rose again. And if you do that, he will forgive you. He will heal you of your shame and he will save you. That is the promise of the Bible to those who come to Christ. So come to Jesus And when shame reappears in your life, don't stop coming to Jesus because there's always grace with Christ. Now we know for a fact that there is this kind of redemptive purpose to this act of church discipline because of what Paul says next in verse 15. If verse 15 wasn't there, this would be a much more confusing passage, but thank the Lord that verse 15 is there. He clarifies here, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, verse 14 speaks about what the church should do with an unrepentant idol member. And verse 15 speaks to what kind of attitude it should be done. This isn't punishment. Remember, Jesus is the one who took the punishment of our sins on the cross, nor is it excommunication. Excommunication is where we say to an unrepentant person that we can no longer affirm the profession of your faith. Based on the compelling evidence of your unrepentance and your ongoing sin, we can no longer affirm as a church that you are a genuine believer. And so Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Recognize him and treat him like you would any other believer who needs to be saved. But Paul's not there yet. At this point, 
we are not to consider them as an enemy of God, as an enemy of the church, but rather as someone who is still a part of God's family. Meaning, the attitude of your heart in this act of discipline should be the one of familial love, a love that you have for a brother, a love that you have for a sister. Out of a deep love and sincere care for the soul, this kind of corrective church discipline is meant to warn and admonish them about the consequences of their sin and call them to repentance and see them restored into the fellowship of believers. There is no denying the fact that these are hard decisions to make, and these are difficult actions to take. But if we're going to take God's Word seriously, then it's all a part of the good work that we are called to do and not grow weary in doing. This whole letter, this whole letter of 2 Thessalonians has shown us that we need to deal with the persistence of sin on the inside of the church. And we also need to deal with the persecution of sinners from outside the church. And then in the middle of all that, we also need to deal with every fake news and false teaching out there that is pulling us away from the truth. The spiritual race is filled with many hardships, oppositions of every kind, obstacles that are so big to overcome. So how can any Christian carry on like this? With so much opposition and with so many trials and tribulations, how do we keep running this race, faithfully living a life of good works? Well, the answer to that question is found in our final point. You keep relying on Christ. That's how you keep going. That's how you keep doing good works. That's how you keep doing the hard and painful things like corrective church discipline. You keep relying on Christ, and by faith, you take a hold of all of his generous blessings that he gives to his church. The humbling reality is there is no one who can run this spiritual race with their own strength. And Paul knows this, and so after he gives his final instructions to the church, he closes his letter with a series of short prayers. Look there at verse 16. He says, Now, now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's how he ends the letter. He ends with a word of prayer, which has been his pattern so far in this entire letter. After every chapter, he ends with the word of prayer. And here he prays that the Lord would give the church his peace his presence, and his grace. First, he prays for the Lord's peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. I just want you to think about that. Peace. What a precious word to those who are suffering and those who are afflicted. 
with everything that's going on with the Thessalonians, they're probably not feeling a whole ton of peace, right? It's probably the opposite. And so what does Paul do? He prays for the Lord's peace. And and I just want you to notice where this peace comes from. It doesn't come from within us as if it's produced by our own heart, nor does it come from our circumstances and a trouble-free life. It is a peace that is given to you by someone else, the Lord of peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the ultimate source of peace itself. And in a spiritual race that is filled with afflictions, false teachings, persistent sin, and the need to have difficult, heart-wrenching conversations, it's easy for the mind to be shaken and the heart to be troubled. And so Paul is praying that the Lord of peace himself would calm your minds and steady your hearts. And it's not just here and there when you absolutely need it. It's not peace that is given to you sporadically, but look at what he says. It is a peace that comes at all times and in every way, which is basically Paul's way of saying, may the Lord's peace be for all of life, all of your life. His desire and prayer is that you would know this divine peace in every single moment of your life, regardless of the hardships. He prays for the Lord's peace, and secondly, he prays for the Lord's presence. Look at the end of verse 16. The Lord be with you all. I think you know this by your own experience, that when the spiritual race gets tough, when the opposition is strong and the trials are many, it can often feel like a very, very lonely place, right? It can often feel like a very lonely experience. No one really understands. No one's really there. Our race can sometimes lead us into the deepest valleys of sorrow and suffering, pain and loss, hardships and trials, places that other people have a hard time being there with you. And Paul prays that Christ would be present with us. You see, Paul would later testify in another letter to the value of having the Lord's presence in such difficult times. In his second letter to Timothy, he wrote, 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 16, Now at my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The presence of Christ was the source of comfort and strength to his soul. Everyone else, others may have abandoned him, but he did not lose heart because Jesus is never one to abandon his people. And so with great faith, Paul can pray, the Lord be present with you all. And then in verse 17, before his closing prayer, he interjects with a statement about the authenticity of his letter. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Usually what Paul would have done is have someone to write out his letter for him while he's dictating. But in this case, what he does is he explicitly explains that he is signing off 
This is his own writing to show that everything that's written in this letter is genuine. It is authentic. It is all Pauline. Now, it's quite possible that the confusion regarding the second coming of Christ mentioned in chapter 2 was through a letter that looked like, that seemed like it was from Paul himself. 2 Thessalonians 2.2, he says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it sounds like there were people who were who were using Paul's name and, and spreading all of these false lies and false teachings. And so, in order to reassure the Thessalonians, he uses this opportunity right at the end of the letter to basically sign off with his own name to show, again, that everything in this letter is truly from him. He wants them to know that this letter is from the one who planted the church, the one who first brought the gospel to them, the one who was assigned and appointed as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in reassuring them that this letter is authentic and therefore the inspired word of God, he closes with this final prayer. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He ends the letter where he began. Grace to you, grace and peace to you. And now he prays for the Lord's peace, the Lord's presence, and the Lord's grace. Grace in its most basic definition is unmerited favor. It is being given that which you don't deserve. As we read in Ephesians 2, it is by grace that we are saved Grace has saved us from the very beginning and set us on this path of running our spiritual race. But like I said in the very beginning, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And what we need every day and every moment to keep running this race of faith and living a life of good works is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, My dear brothers and sisters, while you're running this spiritual race, don't lose heart because of persecution. Jesus is coming again. Don't get confused by all the false teachings that are out there. You have a firm foundation in the Word of God. Take hold of that truth. And don't become idle and don't condone and enable idleness in the church. Keep doing the good work of faith by relying on Jesus Christ because with him are all the spiritual blessings of heaven and it's all for you. And the Lord will give you his peace, the Lord will give you his very presence, and the Lord will give you his very grace. So, onward, Grace Fellowship Church, to eternal glory.